0: Hey guys, what's going on? This is DJ TLM and you're about to check out episode 11 of the Shared the Knowledge podcast for DJ's season 2. This episode was recorded at the end of July on a day when I was sick in bed. So the audio quality will be different compared to the last and future episodes. I want to apologize for that, but the content was dope and I want to share it with you anyway. So without further ado, check out episode 11. For the last 26 years, I've been rocking stages, playing in clubs and having a lot of fun as a DJ and turntablist. And in that time, I've seen and learned a lot. It's time for me to share that knowledge by answering the questions that can help you to become a better DJ. I'm DJ TLM, and this is the Share the Knowledge Podcast for DJs. Welcome to the Share the Knowledge Podcast for DJs. I'm your host, DJ TLM, and this is my weekly Q&A show, educational podcast for DJs. I'm about to answer a bunch of questions, and I just want to start by apologizing for not dropping an episode last week. I'm currently pretty preoccupied with my first official DJ course. I'm in the middle of creating that course as we speak. Uh, But I didn't want to go too long without an episode. I want to make sure I'm continuously adding value to the DJ community any way I can. And this podcast is definitely a perfect outlet for me. So I have a bunch of questions and comments ready that I just want to get into. If you are new to my podcast, if you are new to my content, this is my Q&A show for DJs. I answer questions. You can ask me questions through social media. Just leave the hashtag, share the knowledge and reach out on Instagram. That's the best place to reach me, uh, DJ TLM, on social media everywhere. And of course, you can also check out my YouTube channel, DJ TLM TV, with over 430 educational dj videos so let me just go back to instagram and let me see what is going on here all right i see two separate stories let me see if i can combine these hey dj tlm if you wouldn't mind answering this question is there a specific method to mixing songs using the eq some say lower the high and low and keep the mid raised Others say to just lower the low when bringing in the song. Or would you say it's always going to be different based on the songs? Sorry if I'm all over the place with words. I'm new to this and still figuring out how to communicate better when talking about this subject. I totally understand. All right, so I understand bringing it in on the one is best for some tracks. But as I've been recording myself, I can't seem to find the right way to blend these songs with the EQ. I saw your do you need to beat match perfect video and you mentioned how you EQ tracks. I'm assuming EQ adjustments are always gonna be different and will just depend on the tracks being mixed. For example, if there's a hi-hat or snare that's overpowering, you might want to lower the highs and mids a bit to, take, uh, to make a smooth transition and the same for bass if that's also the case. Unless the keys are compatible and they sound perfect together, and adjusting the EQ might not be needed. Dropping it on the one definitely does relieve some of the pressure of mixing, just as long as I'm confident the track will keep the energy going. However, for me, in my mind, I feel the crowd might think it's boring. Reason being, I don't know how to scratch it, and I'm not confident about my effect options. In time, as I progress, I know this won't be an issue. But for now, I guess I'm just super conscious about how things might sound to the people dancing. All right, so let me just start with that last part. You'll be amazed at how little people actually notice when we're talking about your regular club goer. They are not interested in mixed techniques. They do not notice a lot of the mixing techniques, and they don't notice a lot of the mixing mistakes. Unless it's a total train wreck, then anyone can hear that it's not going well. But there's been so many occasions where I could just tell like, okay, they're not even noticing what I just did. Or even when you're doing a transition, the entire eight bars of my transition, 90% of the crowd did not hear the new song coming in yet. Only when I made the full fader switch to the new track and that hook began, that's when all of a sudden I got like a roar from the crowd because now they recognize the song. And I've noticed the same thing when I used to go clubbing all the time. I would be on the dance floor, so I was not there as a DJ, but as a DJ, your DJ ear is always on. And I would be with a group of people and those people were not DJs. I could hear which new track was coming in within the first bar of the transition. I noticed that, my ears are trained for that. So I could already hear, oh, This song is coming next. And I would say it out loud. Oh, here comes this song. And people would look at me like, how do you know that? And I'm like, listen. And they had to pay very close attention. Then some might hear. And some just don't even pay attention to me saying it until the song comes in. And then they're looking at me like, how did you know? So that proved to me that a lot of people do not notice what we as DJs notice. So don't think too much about how people might perceive you um, because you might not know certain techniques or you haven't mastered certain skills yet. That is definitely not important. It's important to you and you might feel it's important to get respect from certain DJs, but do not be concerned about the party people. They just want to hear the music they like. They're not there to judge mixing Unless, of course, like I said, it's a total train wreck and you got snares going all out of sync. uh, Then you shock your crowd and they can't continue to dance and they don't like that. So let's back it up a bit. Go back to the beginning part. When it comes to using EQ for transitions, there's a couple of things you can do. I'm a super basic guy when it comes to my transitions. I basically only adjust my low end, so the bass, the low frequencies. That is my go-to way to mix when I'm using EQ. Uh, Let me just add to that. I always use the EQ. Even if two tracks are perfectly in key, like synced in key, so they have the same key, that doesn't mean that you still want to just throw everything in there with all EQ set to the middle. Because you have to imagine, if you have one track playing and it's playing at a great volume, nice and loud, full bass, you name it. Once you add a second track that also has that same amount of bass and high and mid in there, you're going to increase the entire level. And especially when it comes to the low end, that that might become too much of a good thing. So I'm not saying you have to take out the entire low but it might be in your best interest to still take some out, even if tracks are perfectly matched in key. So for me, the normal transition would be to take the low end out of one of two tracks because I don't want the low end on both tracks in there. That's going to be overpowering. Sometimes I'll bring in the new track and I'll bring that new track in subtle. If I'm bringing it in subtle, I'm taking out the bass of the new track. That means that during my transition, you're still hearing the most frequencies coming from the track that was already playing. So that's more of a sneaky mix. And maybe during that transition, I'll slowly adjust the EQ, start to add more low end on the new track and take some out of the old. And a lot of times I just do like an eight bar transition and the entire eight bars, I'll have that bass totally cut out. And only when it's time for the new phrase, I just turn the bass back in, switch the fader, and you'll hear the new track. That's one way. Now, if I want to have a transition where I want that new track to have more attention, and this is probably the thing I do the most, I'll bring in that new track with full bass, and I'll cut out all the low end on the track that was currently playing. So that means that we're coming into the hook of the track that's already playing. You're still hearing that song, but now the overpowering beat, the, the, the beat that gets the most attention, is the new beat that I just brought in. But in any case, I'm not leaving the low end in on both tracks. I'll eliminate it from one or the other. Now, of course, if you're playing in a genre of music where it's more of a custom to play longer transitions, where you might do a mix where you're actually playing two tracks together for 32 bars or maybe even longer, Now, in that case, you're not just going to take out the low and do a mix. In that case, you're probably going to bring it in on a lower volume, have some of the frequencies out, and slowly start to adjust bringing in more frequencies on one track, taking some out on the other track. But yes, this is going to be different per transition depending on what kind of sounds and frequencies are uh, in the tracks that you're using. So, yes, that's a big difference. If one track has vocals, you might want to make sure you leave some of the mids in because if you take that mid out, you might take out a lot of the vocals. That's where experimenting comes into play and trying out different things. But for my style of mixing, where most of my transitions won't be longer than eight bars, I'm going with that taking out the low end on one of the two tracks. So I hope that helps you out, but there's no set rules to this. And uh, yes, dropping it on the one definitely relieves pressure of mixing, especially when you know that the tracks just won't sound good as a transition, maybe because they just both have vocals all over or because you're doing a switch in BPM that's a little bit bigger, you name it. Uh, In that case, dropping it on the one is the perfect solution. Now, you're not confident yet with, with effects, Or scratching, you don't need to, but it's something you can just work on and slowly start to implement that into your sets as well. So when it comes to scratching, I feel every DJ should at least try to learn how to do a baby scratch. It's the most basic scratch, but even if you only know how to do a baby scratch, you can use that baby scratch to scratch in new tracks. That alone already puts you ahead of DJs who do not know how to scratch. So even if you never learn how to do any other scratch techniques, If you have the ability to not just hit start or hit a hot cue to bring in a new track, but instead you can do a quick and then bring it in, that's already something extra. And it's not even to show off to the crowd, in my opinion. It's just way more fun to be actively involved by bringing it in with a scratch instead of just tapping on the side of that CDJ to have your timing right. Until you can press that cue button and bring it in, like I see a lot of DJs do. And that's no disrespect to their technique. To me, that just would be a more boring technique. And to be honest, and that's personal, for me, it's easier to bring a new track in better timed than when I'm hitting a cue. Because when I'm scratching the jog wheel or the vinyl back and forth... I'm already totally in that rhythm, which makes it easier for me to release on the right moment. And I found when I use a hot cue, if I'm not really doing like what they're doing, like tapping a couple of times to have my rhythm right, I tend to be a little bit more off. But I definitely prefer to bring it in with a scratch. But practice that baby scratch so you have that in your arsenal and then take it from there. And effects, I do not use a lot of effects, but when it comes to effects, you don't want to overdo it. And just start by learning how to apply some of the simpler effects. So I sometimes use the filter that's on a lot of mixers. So I'll have my EQ. And on top of that, I might add a filter by the end of the transition. So the last couple of bars, I start to add a filter to it to really take that track more out of it. Or if I grab the track that I'm taking out during the transition, I'll grab it and start to scratch with it and then activate the filter to create Uh, A funky kind of sound with it. So I hope that helps you out uh, and have a lot of fun practicing with that because that is what it's all about. Practice. (laughs) Oh, wait. I just saw that I missed the third message from the same person uh, adding on a little extra info. Let me just read that just in case. We were talking about how the crowd reacts or that the crowd might feel that it's boring. And here he says, when I say crowd, I'm talking about family and friends. I'm 35, and I've always wanted to DJ since high school, especially because I love music, hip-hop, and R&B especially. I purchased the Pioneer DDJ-SX3 in November, and since then, I've been practicing and hosting small parties at my house so I can get people to move and practice song selection to keep them moving. It's fun, and I love it. I just wish I possessed some scratching uh, skills so I can add some style when I'm dropping it on the one. All right, so basically... I already addressed that as well. So yes, continue to practice. And hosting those small parties is a great way to actually practice playing in front of people. And I can't stress this enough. Playing at home, by yourself, or playing for people, those are two just entirely different things. Uh, It's very important to practice in front of people as well. Once you've mastered the basic techniques so you can actually play and mix a couple of records. So, uh, yeah, you're already loving it. So you're going to have more fun with it. Uh, Continue to practice and you'll do fine. All right. So I wasn't really going to talk about this because it was not that big of a deal to me. And I already saw plenty of my colleagues making videos about the subject, but I guess I'll have to speak on it anyway, and that is iTunes. I've been receiving some questions as well. I think it's mostly the headline that has some people, some DJs, totally freaked out. Apple will announce the end of iTunes next week. Now, that's the headline, and I understand that there are a lot of DJs, and just consumers, but a lot of DJs who use iTunes to organize their music collection and their crates, I've personally never done this. I never wanted to depend on a piece of software to organize my crates. So I've always just had folders, which in my eyes is still the best solution. But I know a lot of people use iTunes and they are freaking out because when you read the headline, Apple will announce the end of iTunes. I understand that that could freak you out because you might feel as if you were going to lose your software. Now, to be honest, I don't believe that is the case. Now, I understand that they want to divide all of the features that iTunes currently has into separate apps. So they want just to have a music app and a podcast app, you name it. But I'm pretty sure that one way or another, there's going to be an iTunes or Apple app that will allow you to organize your music. And if that's not the case, I don't believe that the iTunes you have installed now all of a sudden will disappear off your computer. There might not be a new version, but I'm pretty sure you can still use your old iTunes. Now, I'm not going to go in-depth into that because I have not done the research, honestly, because I didn't care. But I do feel it's important for me to do that research so I can hopefully educate and enlighten people when they ask the question. But in this case, I've received a question about it that was not iTunes specific. And that's what made this topic interesting for me. So the question is, I use iTunes to organize my crates. Now I have to switch to Serato crates. The lesson we learned the hard way. Good thing I already have meta tags on most of my tracks in the comments. This is going to throw off my workflow. Can we talk about DJ dependency on software? Company A, stops supporting a platform, product, application, what do you do? Cool. Now, that is way more interesting than just talking about iTunes. And like I just said, to me, it was always clear that I did not want my folder construction to be dependent on software. So even when I was using Final Scratch and after that, I went to Serato, I always wanted to be sure that I was able to have my crates the way they are so from day one I made folders on my computer I had those folders on the computer I had those folders on an external hard drive I had those folders on a USB flash drive but that way I knew I could come anywhere and play on anyone's uh, system so I have my folders the way they are, so even if I have to import them into your software, I still have my folders and everything is in the same place where it's supposed to be. To me, that was the more logical approach. Now I understand that, for instance, if you use something like Record Box and uh, you use their Smart Crate option, uh, and let's be honest, like Serato has Smart Crate options, I think Tractor too, but. If you use that, that is something that you can't really do in your folders. And I love smart crates, so I do use smart crates in Rekordbox. For those listening who are not familiar with smart crates, a smart crate is a crate that doesn't really hold any music, but you give that crate rules within the software, and you tell uh, those crates to look at your entire music collection that you have within the software, And you apply a couple of rules. So for instance, I can make a smart crate and I'll make a rule that states that I want all tracks that are faster than 105 BPM in that crate. Now, in my case, that will probably be a lot of music. And if I only want to have like tracks that are 105 to maybe 112, I'll add a second rule that says only music that is slower than 112 BPM. If I apply those two rules, I'm going to have that smart crate take all of the music in my collection that is 105 to 112 BPM. And you can add more rules to that. So if you want to have a rule that also states that you want everything that has the tag uh, hip hop, then it will only take that. Or if you have different type of tags or comments that you add to your tracks. So smart crates are great. If that software is gone, then I don't have that option anymore. But for me, that's not the biggest problem. Like I have my normal crates as folders on my computer just because I don't want to depend. So if, for instance, like stated in the question, company A stops supporting a platform, product, or application, what do you do? Well, if you're currently totally depending on that platform... um, and they stop, first of all, you're going to have to switch. That is just uh, a must. Not if it's about folders uh, creation, but if you use DJ software to play and that company stops, maybe their old version continues to work and you can continue to use that. Otherwise, you're going to have to make a switch to different DJ software. Uh, That is something that just comes with, uh, with the territory. And let's be honest, it's not just software. If you're currently using a certain type of turntable, let's say the Technics Technics SL-1200, everyone was using that turntable. At a certain point, they stopped making those turntables. Now, granted, you could still get them. They were getting a little bit harder to find new, and now they came back with a new turntable, but they're charging uh, ridiculous amounts of money. But they could have totally stopped making those and then they were going to be harder to get. Now, that would also mean that you would have to move on to a different piece of hardware. So it's not just a software software thing. And with turntables, a lot of people did move on over time, not just because Technic stopped making them, but because other turntables had more options. So a lot of people moved on to Vestax turntables and I've had plenty of Vestax turntables, Numark turntables, Stanton turntables, Uh, Of course, now even Pioneer has turntables. Uh, I have Denon turntables as well. So there's plenty of options. So I've never been one to hold on to a certain something too much anyway. If it's my perfect fit, then yes, I prefer to use that until the end of time. Um, But let's just say I have a mixer now and it's my perfect mixer and they stop making that mixer and I can't buy it ever again then I'll do anything I can to uphold that mixer and uh, keep it in the best condition possible. But yes, at a certain point, that mixer could die, and then maybe I'd have to move on to something else. I mean, it could always happen. But um, it is just a matter of adapting, and I don't really see a problem because in the current day and age, there's always other options. Let's just say you're in love with the Pioneer, of DJM S9. If it's all of a sudden no longer available anywhere, they don't make it anymore, you can't get them secondhand, they're just not there. I mean, it's not happening, but just imagine that you can't buy one anywhere. Then there's always something like a 72. It's not 100% the same, but you'll get used to it. It still offers you the same features. Or maybe that new Elite Mixer by Reloop, it also looks like it has pretty similar features. So, I would adapt, and I would probably move on to one of those. Same thing with the turntables. I still have my old Technics. I still have a pair of Technics that I have had now for the last, let me do the math correct, 25 years at least. I have a pair of Technics SL-1200s that I've had for 25 years. I've uh, had them fixed over time, new RCA cables, uh, internal grounding, you name it, but I've had those for 25 years but I definitely never felt I had to stick to Technics. And that's why I also had all of these other turntables I I just named. So uh, yeah, man, with iTunes, I'll do a little more research. But as I've heard now, you can still continue to use your iTunes. It's just that the newer apps coming out will be just divided into separate apps for separate functions. I can only imagine that Apple will give you at least one app that allows you to control your music collection. And I understand that they're moving more towards streaming, but they're still selling music. They still want you to play that music that you already bought with iTunes in one of their apps. So I can't see how that app would not be able to also allow you to have your playlists and tags and you name it. I want to take this time out to thank the sponsor of the Share the Knowledge Podcast, Banzoogle. And Banzoogle is your one-stop solution for websites. So if you currently only have your social media outlets, your platforms, but you don't have your own website, I believe every DJ should also have a website where you can point anyone to. It's cool that you're on YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, you name it. But if you want people to find all of your info on in one place, a website is still the best solution. Like I can send people to my Instagram. I can send people to my YouTube channel. But if I want people to remember one thing, I'll just tell them, okay, check out djtlm.com. And they can find all my info there, including the links to all my social media. But Banzoogle allows you to create websites the easiest way possible. They have a lot of templates ready for you to use. You can just install the template, then just add some of your own content. And the cool thing about Banzoogle is that it's actually made by artists for artists. So they have us in mind. So they have solutions to sell your merch on your website, commission-free. They don't take any money from that uh, to build your mailing list, uh, to implement some of your social media platforms right onto the website as well. Uh, I made a site for the Share the Knowledge podcast called com. And I literally made that site within half an hour. And I've never used Banzoogle before. It was that easy. So for me, it is a great solution because if you make your website on your own using something like WordPress, uh, you're going to have to make sure you always keep everything updated Make sure that you have the latest updates for all your plugins because if you don't, and this has happened to me, your site becomes vulnerable. Your site can get hacked and then your email and everything is marked as dangerous and all of a sudden you can't send stuff anymore. This is a real life horror story. I've been through it. I couldn't send anyone anything anymore because... All of my emails that were at djtlm.com, they were all marked as, um, I don't know how you call it, not dangerous, but they were flagged. Same thing with the website. You can go to my website. Google would give you a warning like, hey, this site has been deemed to be unsafe. Now, when people see a warning like that, most likely they will not go to your site. So um, just a quick tip in between thanking the sponsor. If you're making your own website, make sure you keep everything up to date at all times. But if you don't want to go through all that hassle, you can use Banzoogle for that, and all of the updates are done automatically. You don't have to worry about any of that. All you have to do is put your content on the site, and that's it. Now, you can try them out for free for a month, but if you like what you see, you can use the code SHARE if you use the link in the description box down below to get 15% off your first year. So once again, shout out to Banzoogle, the sponsor of the Share the Knowledge podcast. All right, so I saw a cool question. Can you share your thoughts on adding a machine or a Torres SP-16 in any of your sets as a performance tool? I've thought about this in the past and I've never actually done it that way. I've had done shows in the past where I have, I've, I've had a drum machine there just to play a couple of beats, but that, that was like way, way back in the days. I brought my MPC, uh, my MPC-2000XL, And I just had some beats and I wanted to play those beats during my set. So I brought that thing with my discs with the beats on and loaded it. And um, yeah, that was fun. But I couldn't say that that was really a performance tool inside my set. But I did use it to play some beats that I did not have on vinyl. Now... There's no real need to do that anymore because we have everything digitally. So if I make beats at home and I just want to play my own beats, I just can have my beats on my computer as WAV or MP3 files and play them in my set. So I don't need to bring an extra machine like my machine that I use now to uh, play my beats. Now, if you want to really turn your normal DJ set more into a performance set where you're actually making some music on the spot or at least you want to play some of your beats but maybe you don't want the entire beat the entire time but you want to start with just the hi hats on the beat and maybe then have the melody play then maybe do some scratches and then play the entire beat you you name it there's all sorts of things you can do if you bring that beat with the machine And then you can mute separate tracks. Now, if you're using Tractor, you can already do something like that. It's called Stems, and you can create stems of your own music and use those in Tractor. That's basically the same thing. Uh, But yes, it is an option. Now, what you do see a lot of DJs do is they might bring one of these add-on controllers to trigger samples and um, loops to use in one of these Red Bull 3-style type sets. Some use an external add-on controller. A lot of other DJs are perfectly fine just using what they have on their mixer because you have to understand, we have a lot of these mixers out now. I already named them during this podcast. So the S9, the Rain 72, the Reloop Elite Mixer. Those mixers already give you uh, 16 pads right there on the mixer to triggers, samples, loops, you name it. So basically, they do the same thing that something like a machine could do if it's all about just triggering certain samples. If you do a lot of stuff in Ableton or another DAW and you have your beats and stuff in there, then maybe it's better to have a separate controller just to control what's going on there. But I know there's ways that you can connect your one of these mixers to your computer as well, and they could, I think, also trigger stuff from your DAW. I've never, exper- never tried that, but I know there's so many things that are possible. Like, just take a look at a DJ like Kipsky, and i featured him on the podcast as well. Um, you can check him out on YouTube. He does something that you call synth and he's incorporating entire uh, synths And I'm not talking about like what you might think is a synthesizer when you see one of these keyboards. No, I'm talking about an actual synthesizer that allows you to create sounds. So he's bringing like the big patch bay with all the wires sticking out. And he has that connected to his Tractor Z2. And he's using Tractor and he's using his own music and creating sounds with that synth But then at the same time, he can use his turntable and control vinyl to manipulate the sound coming out of that synth. And I cannot explain to you how that is connected, but I know it is. So you have a lot of different options. And I think it is the greatest time ever for DJ slash producers who want to actually do more of a live performance instead of just playing tracks. I'm currently still a DJ who just plays tracks mostly. And at a certain point, I do want to incorporate more music. But I think that will come once I have more of my own music that I actually feel I want to incorporate in my sets. But there's definitely a place for add-on controllers, uh, you name it, if you actually use them to perform. If you're going to have an add-on controller there, like machine, and all you do with it is activate your cue points, where you can already do that with your mixer, then it's not really adding anything. Then it's just a visual uh, extra, which makes people think that you have all of this extra stuff going on, where you're not doing anything extra with it. But um, I think there's a lot of possibilities. I just haven't really explored in which way I'll implement that. But for now, I can start by just using what I have on the mixers that I own. Oh, and shout out to ReLoop, by the way. I just saw that they released their portable turntable, the ReLoop Spin. And that looks really dope, I must add. If I'm not mistaken, they have the crossfader on one side, but I see a second slot on the other side. And this looks to me as if you can place the crossfader in any one of those slots. So if you want to be a lefty, you can have it on that side or you use the other side if you want to be the right-handed uh, uh, scratcher, uh, fader guy. I like what I see. I don't know how big it is though. I want to see the dimensions. I want to know if it also fits into my, um, uh, uh, my, my bag, my cut bag, the jetpack cut bag. That would be cool if it fits. But salute to Reloop, man. I mean, it's really cool to see the rise of the entire portableism scene. Where you got multiple brands releasing these turntables, portable turntables, but actually making them for the turntablist and not just to play records. They really have the turntablist in mind. And I've already seen that the Jesse Dean uh, fader fits in there or that they already have one that's custom made for that. So the first mods are already available. (laughs) That is absolutely crazy. Now, I also saw that there were some other brands that were working on portable turntables. I was actually approached by a brand um, out of China and I believe they wanted to send me one, but I haven't heard back from them. So I will check in because they sent me like a video. That device looked very cool as well. I forgot the name, but also portable turntable. But it's just cool to see all of these brands uh, uh, jumping in because that's gonna lead to hopefully better products in the end. If you got more brands making gear for a certain um, group. Oh, what, you got some videos out already? I'm going to check those in a minute. I'm seeing videos of the Reloop here. Oh, that looks dope. But when you got more brands competing to, to bring out stuff, they're going to have to up the quality. So it's always good for us. That's why I don't like when brands have sort of a monopoly, a monopoly situation with certain gear. That's why I love when Denon stepped into the game with that SE 5000, because Pioneer has to work a little bit harder to make that next CDJ like an absolute beast, when for a long time, they were just like the sole rulers of this. Now, they're still way bigger. A lot of clubs already have the CDJs, but people see what that SE 5000 can do, and I know Pioneer knows they can't just come out with the CDJ um, Mark three and not really bring new or better features. So, we will be cool to see what happens there, but that's probably going to be quite a while. They don't rush things like that. So, this is something that is also part of adapting to different times and different technology. And this is in regards to a comment on one of my YouTube videos about not remembering songs. That was actually from Share the Knowledge, the podcast, episode 5 And not five, like this is episode 11 and that was six episodes ago. No, the first season. This is season two. Season one lasted for about 70 episodes. So this is a long time ago. All right, the comment is remembering tracks was a lot easier with vinyl because you'd have such a different relationship with the physical album checking it out in the record store, buying it, carrying the thing home, looking through your crate, knowing where to drop the needle, so much more involved with the music. And I think that made it a lot easier to remember. Just moving back into DJing with digital and having so much harder time, I totally agree that this is a major, major difference. Now, one thing I have to say, I totally agree with the fact that because of uh, the fact that it was a tangible product, that you had to go out and buy, you had to go to a store, you would grab it, you would put it on the record uh, player, on on the turntable, listen to it in the store, then choose which one you would take, take it home in a bag, carry it, take it out of the sleeve, put it on your turntable at home, read the back of the sleeve, it was a different relationship, you would recognize those sleeves, when I was out playing, I could go through my crate and just by seeing a corner of the record sleeve, I knew which record it was. And of course, when I was going through the crates and I was finding songs that I wanted to play, but maybe not yet, I would put them in the crate sideways so you would have all of these little corners of the sleeve sticking out. That's a totally different relationship compared to digital files where you don't really have sleeves. Now, of course, you can put artwork in your software, but that's not the same thing. But besides it not being a tangible product anymore, it's just so much more. I think that's even a bigger problem than just the fact that we had a different relationship where you had to go out and buy it. Nowadays, there's so much music. Like if you even join one DJ pool, you're going to get weekly updates where they've added so many new tracks. That's not even comparable to what you would find if you would go to the record store. Now, I used to go to record stores at least two to three or four times a week. Two times on the days when they were getting the new vinyl and the other two if I just didn't have enough time the first two days and just to socialize because that's where you met other DJs. But I was there every week and every week they would have a new bunch of records coming in. But it's not like they would have a hundred new 12 inches every Saturday. That's not happening. There'll be a bunch, but definitely not close to that many. If you join a record pool now, most likely you're getting that amount of songs every week. And especially if you join a couple of record pools, or maybe you're on some mailing list from artists as well, you're getting so much content every week that it makes it so much harder to pick. That's why a lot of DJs don't pick. They just take the whole lot. And then you don't have the same relationship because it's going to be a lot harder to remember. I'm even having a harder time now remembering like uh, lyrics of tracks where I used to remember everything. That's also because it's just an overload of music so you're hearing so much music and to me it even came to a point that I lost a bit of interest of checking out new music because it became too much. It took up so much time and to add, there was so much trash in there as well. And do not mistake me for an older DJ who hates new music. That is not the case. But when there's 100 new songs coming out every week, not all 100 are going to be great. Not even 50 of those are going to be great. Some are not great to me because I don't like the style. And others just aren't good at all. Again, it's personal, so to me. But um, that's a major difference as well. So that is something you have to deal with if you're DJing now, knowing that there's a lot of content available, and the best thing you can do is be very selective of what you add to your crates because once you add it to your crates, now it's in there, and you're going to notice sooner or later while you're scrolling through your songs that, um, yeah, you don't know a lot of the stuff that's in there, and you scroll by it, and you'll tell yourself you'll check it out later. Mostly you won't, and your crates become cluttered and you can't find anything anymore so i'm trying to avoid that and my goal is still to make my crates smaller not bigger oh yeah so there's one thing i wanted to mention as well and i've talked about this on several occasions and this was a comment for my how much to charge video and the question is do you see an issue with encouraging new djs to enter the industry in a potentially busy slash competitive market that is struggling and make it their goal to charge zero bucks for sake of getting in the game and earning experience. I've come across this issue with venues that are so concerned about paying DJs that they will take any new guy and gladly feed him alcohol as paid for hours of work and social media promotion. What's your take on this issue? Uh, now, I answered the question already, but I'm one, I want to answer it on the podcast as well. Uh, So basically, my answer is I do not blame those DJs. I take issue with the promoters and venues. So here's the thing. I will always encourage new DJs to, if they can, also do some gigs for free to get that experience because experience is very important, more important than the monetary gain uh, as a new DJ. And I still stand by that till the end of time. And I know some DJs won't agree they'll tell me that you should never play for free. And um, to to each his own, we can agree to disagree or whatever, but my personal experience playing for free for about a year in that small bar taught me more than any of the paid gigs that that I did during that time. And I did some paid gigs, but I didn't have many gigs yet. But that year taught me so much about playing in front of people, especially because that crowd was not even specifically a crowd that was into my music. So I had to work twice as hard to make sure I kept them dancing. Um, Here's the thing. Like I said, I don't have a problem with new DJs offering their services for free. But if you're a promoter or venue and you want to book me as TLM now, but instead of booking me, you prefer to book a brand new DJ with no experience just because you don't want to pay any money for a DJ, then I take issue with you, the venue, the promoter. But if that's their prerogative, if that's what they want to do, let them go ahead and do that. I believe it's going to take down the quality of the event if you put a DJ like that there. But I'm not talking about uh, small bars. I'm talking about like actual clubs. Like my free gigs weren't in like some big venue uh, and I wasn't taking up the spot from some pro DJ. But it is a fact that a lot of promoters out here, they do not want to spend money on DJs. And that's just a problem because they want quality, but they don't want to pay for quality. Um, Now, let me correct that. Some want quality, but I believe that some just don't care. They, they just want to see that the bar is full and that people are buying drinks. And if they can get like some young DJ who has a social media following to bring in people, then that's perfect for them. Now, in the long run, I think it will hurt them because they're not delivering a quality party. And I've talked to plenty of DJs here in Amsterdam who told me about situations where um, DJs were actually just uh, being booked to play for super low amounts of money, and the only reason they were being booked is because they had a following, but they were also allowed to bring like, um, like 150 people in on the guest list. So those promoters were doing anything they could to have like the club full because that's what they want to promote. Like, look, our party is very busy and, uh, and at the same time, they're not paying anything for the DJ, but they can't because they're letting people in for free. So they're not making any money. Uh, to me, that's not a way to do business. I mean, I understand that you want to promote that you have like this great party where people are always coming. So hopefully other people will come. Uh, But that's not a sustainable business if you have to do that for too long. So the, the approach just seems wrong to me. And I know because I know other organizations who don't have to pull any of that trickery and they just book the good DJs, they pay those DJs and their parties are packed as well. So... If it was a fact that you couldn't get any parties filled with good DJs if you paid them, then I'd say, okay. But it's a fact. You can still organize great events with great DJs, pay them their money, and have a great full club with playing clientele. But a lot of other organizations and promoters somehow feel that this is not the way to go. So I don't take issue with the new DJs. I take issues with those promoters and those venues. And yes, Holding on to my price point has cost me gigs because I've been approached many times over the last couple of years where I almost wanted to just ask people on the other side of that phone if this was like some kind of candid camera thing because they were offering me amounts of money that were so low. I was getting paid more in my third or second year as a DJ. I was like, what are you talking about? So yes, some people try to get you for st- Stupid low amounts of cash that's not happening. So yes, then I get to play less, I understand, but I'm not going to lower my price to that point. So if it means less gigs, then that's what it is. And then again, I get booked for other gigs where the promoters are perfectly fine with paying me my price. So I know it's not that. All right, I'm going to end this episode, by the way, on um, two two quick comments here. The first one is, any thoughts on algorithm dj pro versus serato to be able to use spotify for a mix is quite a thing at least for me uh, i've talked about this many times i really love the fact that algorithm and algorithm pro uh, dj pro lets you use spotify and i use that for one event every year where i play for kids that event is coming up in a couple of weeks so i'm looking forward to that Um, because I'm playing for a crowd that is into music that I don't have and I'm not interested in knowing. So during that event, I let the kids come up to me and request anything they want. And then I use Spotify because it has everything they want. Um, Beyond that, I don't really use the streaming services during my sets. But I think it's a great option. Now, Serato also allows you to implement some of the streaming services. You can use Tidal, SoundCloud. Uh, so I guess it all depends. Like if Tidal doesn't have what you need, as Spotify does, and if that's important to you, then maybe you should consider switching or use the one for one gig and the other for another gig. But if Tidal also has most of the stuff that you would like from a streaming service, then you can use Serato with Tidal as well. Now, the last thing I saw is pretty cool. I've seen that uh, a couple of times, and that is a comment on my Beach Bars and Phrases video, and the comment is, excellent video, excellent lesson. Help me understand more about my music when I teach fitness class. And that's a very cool thing. I've seen a lot of comments for my uh, Counting Music video from people who were not DJs. And in some cases, it was from beginning producers or musicians who were studying, learning how to play an instrument, and had trouble with counting. And in some cases, it is from people who teach classes, like certain type of fitness classes, spinning classes, and they want to be able to uh, uh, give instructions based on the music, and they want to know how to count. So that just shows you How counting isn't just a DJ thing. And I try to explain new DJs that as well. When the music is made, it's made with a certain structure in mind. In order to understand that structure, you need to be able to count or understand how counting works. Because that's going to give you a total new understanding of your music. It's going to teach you what is the right way to mix and when to mix. But also to teach like a fitness class Or when you're playing an instrument, how many bars you're supposed to play something. Um, So salute to everyone who keeps on commenting on that video. That video is probably one of my most liked videos and still most watched videos. And that's like a very old video. But it's just a very important lesson. And I feel not enough DJs who are into this educational space spend enough time talking about that. It's going to take... Uh, play a major part in my course as well. It is the first module in my course is all about counting music and the structure of music. And I've seen plenty of courses online where counting and structure is like the third or fourth, fourth module in the course. So it's still being discussed in the course, but I feel it's so important that I made that the first module. Before we talk about anything else, I want to talk about counting music. And the beauty of counting music is you can practice that even if you don't have DJ equipment yet. So if you don't have anything, not a controller, no turntables, whatever, but you have music on your phone or on your computer or on whatever, you can start to practice how to count music. That's the great thing about it. And it is one of the most essential things. And I've seen so-called pro DJs who know how to mix still do that wrong. And it bugs the hell out of me when I see and hear it starting mixes on wrong counts and absolutely not noticing that they're doing that because they do not understand the structure. To me, that's crazy that a pro DJ doesn't recognize that, but I still see that. So that's why I want to make sure that when people learn how to DJ, that they learn how to DJ the right way and that they have their fundamentals in check. So that's it for episode 11. Recording live from the bed. (laughs) Hope you enjoyed this episode. As always, I try to add value to the DJ community any way I can. This is one of my favorite ways of doing that. Uh, In this case, there will not be any video clips, so this is only for the listeners. I'm not recording this with a video because I will not record any type of videos in this room this is like a private spot this is share the knowledge episode 11 shout out to the sponsor band check me out djtlm.com and of course the youtube channel djtlm tv i'm on social everywhere the handle is djtlm peace